You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan, sadly cursed with too many syllables in my name for there to be a catchy song about me. Hmm, what if we did Kevin Man, Kevin Man, does whatever a Kevin can? I have an almost instinctual revulsion to that song, so no, it's not going to work. Today in the episode, we review the newest film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, John Watts's Spider-Man Far From Home. We also continue our Summer of Stan series with the fourth film that we had scheduled for that, Stanley Kubrick's 1971, A Clockwork Orange. Gather your droogs, turn on some Beethoven, all that's coming up on this episode, episode 207 of Seeing and Believing. Fury asked me to come up here and see how you were doing. He just, he felt bad about snapping at you. Really? You guys do have sarcasm on this earth, right? How are you feeling? I didn't think I was going to have to save the world this summer. I know that makes me sound like such a jerk. I just, I had this plan with this girl that I really like, and now it's all ruined. I like you, Peter. You're a good kid. There's a part of me that wants me to tell you to just turn around, run away from all this, and then there's another part of me that knows what we're about to fight, what's at stake, and I'm glad you're here. Me too. But you're worried about your friends. Yeah. I just always feel like I'm putting them in danger. Look, just get them inside and keep them in a safe place for just a few hours, and they'll be all right. It's really nice to have somebody to talk to about superhero stuff, you know? Anytime. That is a clip from Spider-Man Far From Home. We're going to jump into that review in just a moment. This is our, I guess you could say, our July 4th holiday weekend special. We're reviewing the biggest release in theaters and then also a release that happened back in the 1970s, but it's currently playing on Netflix, I guess, I guess we could say that. Stanley Kubrick's Our Summer of Stan series continues with A Clockwork Orange. Kevin, we have this week, and then Barry Lyndon next week, and then the Summer of Stan will be over. I don't know I don't know how to feel about that. I you know, it's it will be the end of a momentous era. I've really been enjoying the series a lot, so that it'll be tough to say goodbye to it, but it has been fun and it also is a weirdly fitting uh, July 4th episode. What What is more American, after all, than Spider-Man and Ultraviolence? <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's a really good, that's a really good take. I didn't even think about that. I thought, I was thinking of the red, the red and the blue on Spider-Man's costume, but the ultraviolent take, I, I think, works pretty well. Well, listeners, back in April... We reviewed Avengers Endgame, and Kevin, to our surprise, and the surprise of everyone, or maybe the surprise of no one, Endgame actually wasn't the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In fact, just this week, Disney released a new adventure starring everyone's favorite neighborhood superhero, Spider-Man. Now, before I continue with the film's synopsis, I do have to note that this segment will indeed contain spoilers for Endgame. 
So if you are the one of 10 people in all of the world who has not seen Endgame, you need to note that we really can't talk about Far From Home without touching on the events that led Peter Parker from the dustbin back to his normal everyday life. That being said, Spider-Man Far From Home picks up three months after the blip, the cosmic event that sent half the world's population to dust and then brought them back five years later. It would be an understatement to say that the world has changed in that half decade. That change comes especially hard for Peter Parker, played once again by Tom Holland, who's not only adjusting to life in high school, but also reeling from the death of his mentor, Tony Stark. But his class is going on a school trip to Europe, and this seems to be a good time as any to relax, hang out with his friend Ned, played by Jacob Batalon, and even possibly pursue his new love interest, MJ, played by Zendaya. Parker's plans are thwarted, however, when he comes into contact with a number of larger-than-life foes who are being pursued by a new superhero named Quentin Beck, a.k.a. Mysterio, a.k.a. Jake Gyllenhaal. Kevin, you are a Spider-Man fan. You've mentioned that in the podcast before, and we do know you've been looking forward to this film. So my opening question to you is, is a really straightforward and simple one. Did Far From Home meet your modest expectations? I would say overall, yeah. I had a good time with Far From Home. And I think in a lot of ways, Tom Holland is the ideal Spider-Man. I think that Tobey Maguire was a great Peter Parker, but not the greatest Spider-Man. Andrew Garfield was sort of the reverse for me. I think Tom Holland is the ideal middle ground where he's a convincingly dorky high schooler in when he's out of the tights and when he's in the tights he's uh convincingly heroic and he has the sort of the the patter that is is necessary for a good Spider-Man you know like the famous wise cracking web-slinging superhero Tom Holland nails that as well. So I like him a lot in the role. And I also think that Watts, as both a writer and director, understands one of the fundamental appeals of the character, which is that which is that the heroism is important, but part of the reason that the character is so wonderful is that he's also just kind of an everyday person. He's not uh, Tony Stark who's super rich. He's not a Captain America who's ultra virtuous. He's just kind of a guy, a guy who happens to have superpowers. And these latest two Spider-Man films really seem to grasp that because, like I said with our review of Spider-Man Homecoming, these are basically teen movies in which one of the teens just happens to have superpowers. And I think that's the ideal way to conceive of the character, at least for these films and i think that overall far from home manages to strike that balance again here but i'm curious to know what you think i don't know whether you're as big of a spider-man fan as me but i'm curious to know your take since you are a little bit more bullish on the marvel cinematic universe (laughs) than i am in general yeah no that that's that's true i i do look forward to these films because I mean, we watch a a lot of movies throughout the year that just, they don't hold my interest, and these usually do. Some hold my interest on a rewatch, and some don't. I I did have a chance to watch half of Homecoming 
earlier this week. I didn't have a chance to finish it. And of course, I, you know, we saw it when it came out a couple years ago and we reviewed it. But that's a, that's a rewatchable film. It's, it's a well-made movie. And I think this one is too. And you hit on it. This is about a couple of high schoolers. And Tom Holland, he plays a really good high school character. This is a high school movie. And these characters actually care about what students in high school care about. There's this really great sequence in the movie where Peter Parker wants to sit by MJ on their long flight across the Atlantic. And the movie just spends a good amount of time playing with that, the humor of it, but also that that desire to sit by your crush for a long period of time. It doesn't feel like a placeholder. It doesn't feel like the film is obligated to give us these scenes. The film genuinely lives within these scenes. And I love those moments. There, there came a point in the film where we, we hadn't seen Spider-Man fight yet. Briefly seen him in his costume. We haven't seen him fight yet. And he's walking the streets of Venice. And by the soundtrack and some of the shots, you get the sense that danger is coming. And I remember thinking to myself as I'm watching this, oh, I forgot. There is a bad guy. I know Jake Gyllenhaal is in this movie somewhere. I know Nick Fury's in this movie somewhere because I've seen him in the trailer. I totally forgot about that. And I would have been okay watching this movie if Spider-Man didn't fight at all in it because it just was a lot of fun. And maybe... All I could say that's overly negative about this movie is I think I just wanted more scenes where they're just hanging out with each other because I, I really enjoyed those. I think you're absolutely right that you and you nail the basic appeal of these films is that the characterization is so strong. The characters are so likable and the the dynamics are interesting enough that a lot of the superheroing almost feels like a little bit of an afterthought. The big triumph of Spider-Man Homecoming was that it found a way to work in the superheroics into it, seamlessly into that sort of template. So in Spider-Man's universe, he's nervous around the dad for that reason, and also because the dad's a psychopath who might try to kill him. <laughs> yeah. That's really great. And I think... Far From Home doesn't manage that seamlessness between the superheroics and the teen movie stuff quite as well. And that probably gets into my biggest complaint about it and why I don't think it stands with the best superhero films is that this movie seems to continually be trying to push Spider-Man into being an Avenger, into kind of taking up the mantle of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that Tony Stark laid down after dying in Endgame. And that's just not really where this character wants to be. And you can tell when you're watching this film that there there's not a whole lot of reason for Spider-Man to exist in the same universe as massive world-threatening peril and uh, other superheroes and supervillains. He's just kind of, he's much more comfortable as this 
film makes it explicit in being just a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. In an early scene, he's being mobbed by press who have all sorts of questions for him about, you know, what's going to happen now that Iron Man is gone? Are you now the leader of the Avengers? And he just it can only say, does anyone have any neighborhood questions? And it's a funny moment in this film, but I think it also really gets at the biggest problem with the uh, Disney Marvel behemoth trying to shoehorn this version of the character into the Avengers verse. He just doesn't really want to be there. He doesn't feel like a comfortable fit. And the movie keeps having to invent ways to make him part of that continuity rather than telling the story that would be a whole lot cleaner without it. There's not a whole lot in this film that would change if you removed kind of the big MacGuffin of Tony Stark's glasses that uh, Spider-Man's character inherits towards the beginning of the film. That becomes kind of this thing that uh, lots of different people are trying to get over the course or recapture over the course of the film. And that's just kind of, it, it's, it makes sense in the film, but it would be a lot cleaner if that was just excised and this Spider-Man was just fighting against somebody who had a whole lot of technology at his disposal to begin with. It just, it seems like this Spider-Man is just, he's happy being a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And whenever the movies try to move him into more of a, uh, you know, a Spider-Man for the entire world or a Spider-Man for the Avengers, he, it just, it feels forced and unnatural. And that comes through in, in the performances. Yeah, I. it's difficult because this comes after Endgame, and everybody kind of wants answers to what they call the the blip or the, the snap. And the film gives us those answers. It's done mostly in, in kind of a, a humorous way. There's a great opener that talks about the the fallen and remembers those who've, who've passed away to, to bring everybody back. And... I don't really see a way around it at this point. This is in this MCU. All these stories are connected. I I like the relationship between Tony and Peter Parker, but the the stuff with the stuff with Nick Fury and all of that, it, it just feels like it is getting in the way of what I wanted to see more. And it's just these characters trying to live out that normal life. And one of the themes in the film is sort of this idea of calling. And Spider-Man wants to be a neighborhood Spider-Man. He wants to have a normal life. He wants to go on this trip with his friends. And I think there is this testament to the movie and to Watts' work that we kind of want that for him too. We don't really we don't really want to see him caught up in all of this. We want to see him be a normal teenager. And the movie seems to be kind of working against that in in some some ways. I I will say when it comes to these relationships, what I appreciate about Watts is he finds a way to to connect these characters together to develop these relationships in a small amount of time. So MJ, she wasn't a huge she didn't she she didn't have a huge role in Homecoming. She kind of shows up now and then and then the big revelation at the end. And yet their relationship feels 
maybe much deeper than it normally would. You have the relationship between Quentin Beck's character, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, and Spider-Man's character, and how they really build that very, very quickly. And then, of course, Ned and, and Peter Parker. And I, I think it's a testament to, to two things. One, uh, I think Watts uh, finds a way to make those scenes important. And I, I said it earlier, he doesn't just put those there because they need to be there feels like he really understands those scenes, and they mean something to him, and they are important. And then, too, I, I think the performances across the board are really good. I think Jake Gyllenhaal does a fine job of, especially earlier in the film, connecting with Peter Parker's character and showing empathy and compassion as he's taking on this role that feels a little strange for Jake Gyllenhaal to take on. And then I think Zendaya does a fine job of creating this fun and cool, but also kind of nerdy character. And so the performances, as well as the screenwriting, uh, allow us to see these relationships develop and then care probably a little bit more about these individuals uh, throughout these big fight scenes than maybe we would in another Marvel Cinematic Universe film. Joan Hall's performance is is interesting to me because I think he does a lot with not very much. I don't I I wish that his character had been given more to do in this, but the problem with the way that this movie is structured is that there there comes a a mid-film twist that recontextualizes a lot of relationships. And it's I mean, knowing the twist is happening doesn't really spoil anything because there's no way you can watch this movie and not know that that's going to happen just from the fact that, you know, the first act is over and there's still a whole lot of movie to go and yet certain things aren't resolved. Let's just say that. And I think that structural quirk hurts Gyllenhaal in that there's a limited amount of places he can take this character given the the constraints that have been placed upon him by that structure. Uh, I do agree, though, that the rest of the cast is uniformly excellent. It's nice to see Watts expand the cast of, of Peter's high school. We glimpsed, you know, Flash Thompson and, and Tony Revolori in the previous film. We glimpsed a couple of the other characters, but we didn't get a whole lot of them, and they get a lot more time to shine in this film, and it's really fun. Uh, and especially that goes for Zendaya, who, as you observe, doesn't have a whole lot to do in the first film. She's kind of off to the side to set up the reveal that she's the MJ that is canonically Peter's love interest at the end of that film. In this film, she gets more screen time, and she reveals that she and Tom Holland actually have a lot of chemistry. There's, I, I don't often get caught up in adorable romances in in movies but there was there were a couple of interactions that these two characters have uh over the course of this film that kind of you know got got me you know going awe a little bit it's really well done and again it makes you kind of wish that there wasn't all this foo-farah around the avengers and inheriting the mantle of iron man you know kind of crammed in here when you get right down to it this film has basically the same arc as Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2 in that in that film, you know, Peter Parker kind of just wants to have a normal life. He's in love with MJ. He is tired of 
being a superhero, he it's too much responsibility. He wants to just leave it all behind and live a normal life. And circumstances by the end of that film conspire to draw him back into the superhero life. And he realizes he can't leave it behind. He has a duty to keep wearing the suit and to keep doing good as Spider-Man. That's basically what's happening in, in this film. And it's just as engaging as ever. It's just that the Marvel machine has cluttered it up with all of this other stuff that kind of has a tendency to occlude the basic sturdiness of that entire premise. And which is a shame because it really is a great premise and the performers and the directing show that they can really sell it well. Yeah. And this film also like Spider-Man two ends with a dashboard confessional song. Um, no, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that you pointed out flash Thompson's, uh, character. He's got some great moments and there's this stinger at the end of the film that just, it makes you rethink everything. The character of Betty Brant is really good, and I won't spoil anything, but there's a there's some fun romance in this film that's used for comedic purposes. But yeah, I think the chemistry between Zendaya and Tom Holland, I, I think it's I think it's really great. It's it's what really carries the film on for me. I do want to point out the action sequences. There are probably three big ones that are generally what you would think of whenever you think of a, a Marvel film. So it's the big kind of destruction scenes. There's some other action sequences, but those are smaller. And what I appreciate about what Watts does with the first two is instead of giving us kind of everything, instead of letting us see everything in that first fight and then just abide by the law of diminishing returns to where you get to the end of the movie and you're like, yeah, we've seen all of this. This is kind of, I'm done with this. He gives us two fight scenes early on where I legitimately didn't know what Spider-Man should do in those situations. I, I didn't know how he would fight in those situations. How is it possible to take on these specific foes. And so you're kind of working with the character as they're living out the theme. And as you mentioned, the theme is, well, I'm just a neighborhood person, but I need to be here to save the world if possible. And he's thinking through that. He's figuring that out. And there he is really not knowing what to do to stop this villain and not feeling capable to stop this villain. And so I think those first two fight scenes are really good. And they also build the characters well. And you not only are thinking about how are they going to stop this baddie, but you're also thinking about, okay, how is he going to do that without people knowing who he is? And so a lot of that intrigue is there. The last big climactic fight scene gets a little bit long, but I do love the way that that is framed. It's very different than mass destruction. We have to stop it. And instead it gets a little bit smaller. It twists that up in, in a fun way. And it, and it's really about a couple of lives. And I felt more connected to that last sequence than I usually do in these types of films. Uh, and more than I did in Homecoming. I think that Watts has progressed as an action filmmaker because that, that last section in Homecoming, it, it, it's kind of messy, big CGI airplane. But here, I, I think he does a, I think he does a pretty good job. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if the action in if the nuts and bolts action filmmaking in this film is appreciably better than in the first one. I think the the first one had some good and bad in it. The the fairy scene was quite good. The climactic airplane scene in the first one was not great. In this one, I think it's it's less that. Watts has grown as an action director and more that they've he's found a context in which the style of action that he's using makes makes more sense and it's difficult to explain how that is without giving too much away but I think that there's there's a way that he uses the you know the frenetic camera work and kind of Something that I wish that Marvel movies in general would scale back on, which is sort of that the uh, the tendency to go like all 360 on the on the action, sort of have the camera moving around as these characters engage in all these acrobatic feats, and we see it from every angle, and it tends, at least for me, to kind of unmoor the action from the plane of reality, and it becomes more difficult to become invested in in those cases. In this film because of the context that the narrative is offered for why the scenes are shot that way, it makes a lot more sense and it becomes easier to lose yourself in them because the vertiginous kind of almost unreal quality of the action is part and parcel of what Watts is doing in telling the story itself. So I think that that works pretty well. The themes in the film, well, we touched on uh, a couple already, but there's also this idea of of truth and, and what is true, and that's kind of big right now when we're thinking about journalism, we're thinking about the news, and there's a, a joke by Zendaya as well about that, her character. And in this film, there definitely is this focus on, well, how do we know that someone is here to help us or how do we know that the, someone is here to hurt us? How do we know what's real? How do we know what's fake? And how do we sort all of those? I, I think the film at least offers a few interesting ideas as it pertains to that focus. And I think I would have liked to see the movie maybe maybe push that a little bit deeper. You have Hall's character and he he talks about how people people want a superhero. That's what they're primed for at this point. We've seen the Avengers, we've seen all these individuals and they don't want information. They want a hero and then people will actually listen to a hero. So I think those ideas are fascinating in terms of the wider scope of the MCU. I don't know if the film fully delved into those, but I see an opportunity about society's reliance on these superheroes and what that says about them, and then also, as a result, what comes from that. And then, to just the angle of Tony Stark's tech, and we saw it in the previous Spider-Man film, and it's how his tech, well, throughout many of the films in the MCU, how his tech can be used for evil. And that's kind of a line in this movie, too. And even after he's gone, we see those mistakes and we see those those demons kind of cropping up. Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I think that maybe in, with a different character, the 
stuff that it does with Tony Stark's massive, you know, almost indistinguishable from magic technology uh, would feel like a, a more comfortable fit. In this film, it, it did, again, it just felt a little bit like this isn't really what the series wants to be doing. It kind of wants to just be telling a story about a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. That said, I mean, if you have to have that in your movie, I think that there are some pretty intriguing thematic undercurrents to that related to specifically the fact that sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and the effect that technology and artifice can have on just the way reality itself can be bent and uh, and warped in ways that benefit bad actors. Now, that's well said. Listeners, that is our review of Spider-Man Far From Home. It is currently playing in theaters across the country. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod on Twitter. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to continue our summer of Stan with our look at A Clockwork Orange. song is season of the sun by sighead we really appreciate everyone who's taken an opportunity to support us through our patreon page you keep this podcast going you help us out it's really easy to donate you just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast we look for monthly donors who are going to come alongside us and say hey we really like what you're doing and we would love to hear more we have a number of donation levels one of our favorites is the what would you buy for five dollar level and you know that poses a good question kevin it's quite philosophical but i'll toss it to you what can you buy for five dollars Well, we are recording this episode on the eve of Independence Day, the 4th of July. So my mind is thinking of fireworks, specifically the ones that might be popping off while we're recording this episode. So if you hear loud pops in the background, that is what you are hearing, listeners, are the fireworks outside my window. It seems like $5 would get you bottle rockets that are completely silent. Mm. That's probably why they're only $5, is some people, I guess, buy bottle rockets because they want to make the noise. I would be okay with there being less noise, though. So Mm. I would support this product wholeheartedly. I would would love—I would be a Patreon supporter if they had a Patreon campaign to bring us silent (laughs) bottle rockets. That sounds— That sounds fantastic. Listeners, you could do that with your money or you could support us. Like I mentioned, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing 
underscore believing underscore podcast. And of course, whether or not you are a Patreon supporter, we love hearing from you. We love hearing your your feedback over Twitter or via email. We actually got a, a pretty lengthy email from one of our listeners over this past week, Wade, from Dave Court. Uh, he wrote us a pretty long, very thoughtful email on Toy Story 4, following up from our discussion of that film on last week's episode. And had some pretty intriguing things to to say about it. Here's what he writes. What is clear about Toy Story 1 through 3 is that the films are a metaphor, as you point out, about what it means to grow up. This is the natural progression that we see in Andy grow older, go off to college, and then eventually in Toy Story 3, getting passed down to a new child or owner. This metaphor works as well as it does because it is simple, concise, and uncluttered, and it captures a particular stage of our lives without needing to say anything beyond that. But here's what I think Toy Story 4 did so well. And spoiler alert to any of our listeners who haven't seen Toy Story 4 yet. Toy Story 4 shed light on an aspect of the larger story that was a little bit less obvious, and that that is the idea that while Andy is growing up, the toys are also getting older. This is an aspect I never really considered before revisiting these films now that I'm older myself. Seeing these films now, there is definitely a duality to the metaphor of aging that is heavily present. While Andy is growing up, Woody is also growing old. And it feels clear to me that Woody's story was always meant to parallel Andy's. And this does something interesting for how I was able to perceive Toy Story 3 as a proper ending for Woody's story, or even for the toys at large. There is something incomplete about the idea that these toys are simply stuck in a never-ending cycle, which is where the metaphor about aging ultimately begins to break down. Uh, Dave goes on to uh, talk a little bit more about that. It was a really interesting email, and he had a little bit of a discussion prompt for you and me, Wade, at the end of his email. He writes, In the transition from Toy Story 1 to Toy Story 2, I felt like they pulled the narrative pretty definitively into the aging theme that appears to guide 2, 3, and now 4. I would even go so far as to see number two as a midlife crisis and the daycare in three symbolically juxtaposed as a long-term care facility, as crazy as that sounds. He goes on to, to write, I saw Woody's decision to stay not as a choice to claim or reclaim his individuality, but as a means of reconciling the fact that he has aged out of being someone's toy. The scene where he is standing out looking at the carnival grounds I saw as carrying a well-done, good and faithful servant message. This was him coming to terms with the end of his life and entering into an eternal rest or reward, which also fits from the from dust we come and from dust we shall return motif that accompanies the existence of Forky. If the growing up story comes to fruition in three, the growing old story is given closure in four, and I think when you take both of those things together, it holds the metaphor together in a more completest sense. So, a lot to absorb in that email. Thanks so much for for writing that out, Dave. Really thoughtful. Gave me a lot to chew on. I'm curious to know uh, your take on his take, Wade, about the carnival not being entering into retirement but maybe entering into an eternal rest, perhaps a heaven of sorts. I'm not sure if I entirely buy it, but it's very intriguing to me, and I would like to subscribe to Dave's newsletter. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I, I'm glad that we can kind of talk about the ending here, and you gave the spoiler notice. We didn't get a chance to do that, except in kind of a roundabout way. I think it's I think it's really interesting, and I, I talked about the metaphor of aging. I really do think that this is a film that associates... Woody's story with empty nesters or possibly even people who are older, late adulthood. 
And if you look at the different stages of life, the word that's usually associated with late adulthood from 75 up is that of wisdom. And it's this time when people take an opportunity to pass on what they've learned to other people. So they're not, maybe not as mobile as they were before, uh, maybe can't do the things that they used to be able to do before. Some can, some can't, but they can always mentor people. They can develop those relationships. And you, you see Woody, his, his body is, is changing. It's, it's falling apart. He's giving of himself to other people. And that's this physical representation of, of that wisdom that's passed on. Sometimes, giving of yourself when other people hurt you. Uh, But at the end of the movie, when he chooses to stay, I've argued that it's not this individualistic uh, moment. Instead, he says, hey, I'm done here, and I'm moving on to the next stage. And what does he do? He passes on wisdom to the next generation who are becoming, quote-unquote, parents, where they're joining kids or they're fulfilling that purpose in their life. So I think it works. And then two, you know, Woody and the gang, they premiered, it was in 1995, Toy Story 1. And that's all these years ago. Imagine these filmmakers who helped with that story, where they're at in life now. They're, some of them are at that empty nester stage. So this is a series that as it's progressed and as Woody has progressed, some of these individuals who've been working on this story and working on these screenplays, they've gotten older too, and their children have gotten older as well. So I think it's a really interesting take. I don't know if I would say eternal rest, but I think it's definitely this this latter stage where they're kind of passing on wisdom. Hmm. Well, definitely interesting thoughts. Thanks again, Dave, for writing in. Listeners, if you have any thoughts about Toy Story 4 or if you have thoughts about Spider-Man, which we just talked about in the previous segment, or Clockwork Orange, which we are about to get to in a couple of minutes here, let us know. You can send us an email. We might even discuss your theories or thoughts on the show itself. You can, of course, reach us on Twitter or over email. But for now, Wade... Let's prepare ourselves for a clockwork orange. Like I said, we are about to talk about A Clockwork Orange in this segment, Wade. As J. Jonah Jameson puts it in the Raimi Spider-Man movies, Spider-Man is a menace, but you know who's an even bigger menace? The main character of A Clockwork Orange. (laughs) I don't remember that quote, but... um... That's great. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I, and, you know, I had to find some sort of segue between the lightweight teen movie oh, antics of Spider-Man Far From Home and the grim dystopia of 1970s, 71's A Clockwork Orange. So that belabored segue was the best I could do. No, I think that's great. I think it'll help with the whiplash uh, that <laughs> our listeners are probably experiencing right now. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, A Clockwork Orange was released in 1971 to some acclaim, but mostly shock. Malcolm McDowell gives an iconic performance even today as the utterly immoral Alex, the young leader of a gang of so-called droogs who delight in literally raping, pillaging, and assaulting their way through a squalid near-future version of England. Alex exults in what he calls the old ultraviolence, savagery for its own sake, and we the audience are appalled as Kubrick shows us just what that might look like. But then Alex gets caught, goes to prison, and finds in the film's famous scenes of the Ludovico technique that he's not the only one capable of victimizing others. Wade, this is by far the most extreme of the Kubrick films we're choosing to review here in our summer of Stan, and that's partly by design. Kubrick wants to play with the audience's sympathies. He presents us with a monster, and then he dares us to reconsider our revulsion toward that monster when he is brutalized in his own turn. I think the question that any discussion of A Clockwork Orange has to start with is this. Does this gambit of playing with the audience's sympathies work as intended? (laughs) It's definitely a gamble, isn't it? Because this character performs some heinous acts. And I... Okay, so I've heard about A Clockwork Orange, as you mentioned. This is my first time to watch it, your first time to watch it. And I got this vibe that Alex's character was kind of this, I don't know, cool anti-hero. I I didn't feel that at all watching this movie. And, in fact, I found some of the movie very problematic. I think towards the end, when, when Alex has been programmed to, to almost want death when his natural impulses for violence and uh, sex when they rear up. I, I think there's in, in one way I'm watching the movie and thinking about, oh that mu- you know that must hurt. And there's there's a little bit of sympathy there. but I don't think that Kubrick does enough for us to actually feel sorry for this person in the sense of like, oh yeah, we just we just want him, you know to, to be okay. I, I don't know. It's a really difficult movie, and I think it's a difficult movie to talk about because I think I understand what Kubrick wants. I just feel like the filmmaking at times is kind of going, is kind of going the opposite direction. Would it? I don't know. How did you feel about it, Kevin? I think that this is in an unexpected uh, realization for me. This, like you said, is my first time watching A Clockwork Orange. What surprised me about this film was it seemed kind of obvious to me. And obviousness, uh, you know, uh, lack of subtlety isn't really a quality that I typically associate with Kubrick. I think that, like him or, or not, he's a very complex filmmaker. And he, the, the effects that he creates with his films are multifarious and they those effects are created using very subtle means. A Clockwork Orange is about as subtle as a sledgehammer and I don't think that overall it it really works. And part of that is Kubrick, I think he's just he is trying to be obvious 
intentionally. Like he's not trying for subtlety and just failing utterly. He is being much more in your face with uh, the actions that he portrays in this film and in the you know everything in the mise en scene that he points out to us. He is trying to be obvious. I just don't think that that obviousness really, in the end, justifies justifies itself. Like, for an example, there's uh, a lot of imagery in this film related to uh, to sexual violence. Like, and that's by design. Also, Alex, over the course of the film, sexually assaults more than one woman, and that's part and parcel of this dystopia that Kubrick is creating. The the idea that sexual violence is kind of almost ingrained in the very fabric of society and that it's almost expected at at this point. The there are pictures all over the walls of these homes and interiors that we're in that are basically pornography slightly dressed up to look like fine art. There's a sculpture at one point of a giant phallus that Alex uses to beat a woman to death. There's uh, all this graffiti on the wall of the apartment building in which Alex lives that are is of these classical Greek figures, but uh, there have been you know crude images of genitalia and scatological references spray painted over top of them, and that's Kubrick essentially portraying the decay of society in as blatant terms as possible. I just don't think it's all that illuminating. I I don't think that that kind of in-your-face portrayal really tells us anything that we don't know. And even as a dystopia, doesn't really do anything that a more restrained vision, like, for instance, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, doesn't do with much more subtlety and just as much clarity, but a lot more restraint. Yeah, I mean, there's even a, a section with one of those images and a snake, and it's that same thought. It's, okay, yeah, this is not very subtle. I think I think the film does try to have degrees of subtlety in some of the artwork. So you have the artwork at the houses of these upper-class individuals, and the way in which those images are composed are slightly more sophisticated and I think the film does seem to be saying something about the debasement of culture and how we can use art to fancy up that debasement or to fancy up that that evil. I, I think, too, as I was thinking about the main theme, and the film seems to have a main big idea, and it goes along with that lack of subtlety, and I think it's this. I think it's free will versus enslavement. You have Alex's character, and he's programmed to feel violent pain, as I mentioned, when faced with these impulses. And the characters openly debate that. And obviously it's, okay, the idea of free will, the the idea of being enslaved, choices, the government wanting to create these robots... Even Alex's eyelashes, famous eyelashes from that opening shot, which I think the opening shot's pretty well done, but it it looks like this factory gear or this cog. And it seems to say that these individuals in society are not necessarily concerned with ethics 
They're only concerned with results or scientific advancement. That's how they that's how they go about their business, whether they're the conservatives or whether they're the liberals. And I mean, I I think the film deals with that. I I don't really know what to walk away with. I I'm not really I'm not really sure, and that's why I'm kind of almost at a loss to talk about this movie because it seems to be like, yeah, I mean that that could be a problem. And Kubrick is definitely he definitely feels like a small government type of guy, or maybe even an anti-government type of guy, as we've talked about in his films, and say, you know, okay, yeah, but I don't think that it necessitates the journey that we take with these characters. I don't know if. I would necessarily say that he's anti-government or pro-small government. I think it's more that there's a thread in this film of misanthropy that runs through the entire thing so that government is a problem mostly, at least in Kubrick's view, because it has people in it. And it seems like if you are to allow humans free choice, as this this film makes, makes very clear, then it's inevitable that people are going to brutalize each other, that they're going to try to dominate each other. That's sort of the the strongest survive. It's the law of the jungle, more or less, that Kubrick seems to be positing here. And he's he does it with such relentlessness and uh, singleness of purpose, I think, that and in one respect, I think you can say that this is a successful film because it does show us a vision of a world in which humanity's reached a point where um, basically all facades have been stripped away and our our most debased instincts have to either be completely restrained through brutal suppression or the only other option is to just let them out and lots of innocent people are going to, to suffer and that's just the way things are. I don't know that that's a particularly truthful or illuminating view of of reality but credit where it's due i think one of the reasons why this film has survived and why it's so iconic is because kubrick's distillation of those ideas in some ways is very vivid and and very effective and it's chilling in a way too that makes you think about these issues in a way that maybe a a more a, a film that sought to be more complex in its portrayal of these issues might not have been. So when Alex has undergone the Ludovico technique and he's pronounced reformed, uh, it's not so much that he's reformed as he's just been put in a sort of moral straitjacket. And that's something that Kubrick makes very clear. There's the priest character who's been working with Alex uh, throughout most of the film's second act. And when he sees the effect that the Ludovico technique has had on Alex, he's appalled. And he says, you know, when a man cannot choose, he ceases to be a man. And that's a kernel of truth that I think is uh, really compelling and also leads us to the question of, well, what does Kubrick, what is his vision of mankind in this film? You have to be able to choose in order to be a man. But we see from the version we see of Alex at the beginning of the film that 
a man who can choose is maybe the worst possible thing imaginable. <laughs> Which, again, I don't think that that's necessarily truthful or illuminating, but it's definitely a choice, and Kubrick doesn't compromise on it, that's for sure. I, I think, too, to, to understand this movie, as much as I, I did have problems with it, and I don't know if it exactly it, – well, it didn't exactly work for me. And I'll, I'll talk about some of those others, those problems later. But it's important to see this through the lens of when it was made. In the 1970s, the rise in psychiatry, these methods that were being talked about or at least discussed during that time. And I, I think it's important to deal with that. We, we probably look back at – the methods used here and say, oh, well, that's kind of silly, right? But maybe during this time that was that was something that was considered. Also, the idea of scientific advancement really kind of pushing for the idea of the perfectibility of man. And I, I don't know where Kubrick is in terms of his religious views. I, I haven't read about that. But if he's thinking through, if we're thinking through some Christian views, he's definitely going to check the box of possibly original sin or total depravity off in that it's, that is ingrained in all of us. And you can try all this new technology, but it's still there. And it's like you mentioned, Kevin, it's not that it disappears. It's that his body physically won't let him act that out. I, I did find this film intriguing because so far it's the most, overtly religious film that Kubrick has made, or at least references religion, or specifically Christianity, more than any of his other movies that I've seen. You have the priest character, who's not really a good individual. He seems to want to take advantage of Alex. There are a couple of moments when he wants to defend him, but we still get the sense that he's he's on his own path. He's looking out for himself. Alex reads the Bible, and he envisions the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's surprising the pan that Kubrick takes. It goes from the individual of Jesus, and it turns to the Roman soldier, and that's Alex beating Jesus. And it kind of just goes to show like the violence that's instilled within him, that he doesn't see himself as a follower of Jesus or someone defending Jesus or even Jesus, but he likes to see himself as someone who might actually hurt Jesus. And he likes the violence in the Old Testament. And when they're about to do this method on him, and they're about to reform him. They talk about him being, quote, he will be your true Christian. And all that makes for kind of this interesting backstory that I, I don't think is all too, I don't think it's all too sympathetic to Christianity. I do know that, you know, this is based on a book by Anthony Burgess and Burgess was a lapsed Catholic, and he had some uh, some Catholic sensibilities. So all that's kind of running in the background. And then, too, the film seems to ask us, well, if someone were to be reformed, could we forgive them? Could we bring them back into society? And it seems as if Kubrick wants to make us think about that as well, the true nature of, of forgiveness. I, I think I've, it's interesting to think about that question of reform because in at least in the way that this film uses the word reform 
it makes us aware of kind of a double entendre inherent in that. We think of reform as sort of like becoming better, you know, like I've, I've, I've reformed, I've been, I've been cured. I have turned away from my, my wicked ways, so to speak. But because of the, the cold calculating way that the, uh, scientists have used the Ludovico technique to sort of twist Alex into somebody who's strange even to himself, reformed takes a, a much more sinister undertone to it. He's literally been reformed. He's been formed into something that isn't himself. And I think Kubrick is really saying something very pointed about how the project of ethics and morality really, it can't be solved solely by by science, solely by rationality. There's some other ingredients perhaps that needs to go into uh you know untying that gordian knot and i don't think that a clockwork orange really gets into that too much it seems content more to portray the dilemma without suggesting some sort of solution to it but it's interesting to watch it and to let it provoke in yourself some some of those questions about well what does it mean to to be to be reformed myself like what how, to be a good person is it is that just doing the right thing is it wanting to do the right thing is it wanting to want to do the right thing like that those questions are really naughty and it's difficult to arrive at a definitive answer in the context of this film where the only alternative to Alex's being restrained is him being completely unrestrained and the question of, well, who's using his violence to their ends? Because at the end of the film, of course, we see that the government that subjected him to this awful treatment, once it received some heat for doing that, now wants to lit him back off of his leash. And that's when the final line of the film comes, I was cured, all right. And then we the, the last image we see is of him having this sexual fantasy so we know he's kind of he's going to go back to being the old alex only now he's got the state's approval and that's it's a bleak ending and very chilling and i don't think that it's like i said it's it's particularly illuminating i think that the road that kubrick takes us on doesn't lead anywhere that's that i particularly care to go the questions that we encounter along the way though might might have some merit though yeah, I know. I, I think I think they do. I think it is a little confusing at the end. Well, you know, how did that work? Did he hit his head, and that somehow uh, freed him? Did someone perform some sort of surgery that that kind of freed him from what happened in his treatment, his you know, his reformation? Did dying do that, or the desire to give up and die? Did did it do that? Kind of a Fight Club uh, deal where the main character tries to kill himself to free. Uh, to free himself from the visions of Brad Pitt's character. I, I'm not sure. That is a little bit strange in how that comes about. I, I think I think one of my problems with the film, this is, it, it's full of a mature content, right? And so our listeners, it, it's important to understand that. It, it's more than any of the Kubrick films that we're going to talk about in this entire series. And there are a couple of scenes one in I'll deal with one in particular. So there's a group, uh, a rival gang, and 
they are on this. It's early in the film. They are on this theater stage, and they're in they're in the process of uh, attempting to assault a woman. They're they're assaulting her, and. Alex and his gang kind of comes in, and it's this almost old-fashioned, uh, you know, saloon fight. And I know what Kubrick is trying to do there. He, like I mentioned, he's trying to communicate the debasement of society. Uh, we're faced with the question of, well, who created Alex? And so we see Alex commit these deeds, and then we say, oh well. Well, who's responsible for that? Are we responsible for that? What, what do we do about that? And I get what he's doing. I feel like in some of those scenes and then this the scene of assault later that the camera and the way those scenes are staged really kind of let that play out in and and it's almost as if Kubrick is using this lustful eye on these scenes it, instead of it being this sort of darker moment and then like I said they come in and they have this big fight and then later on the the droogs they go to this writer's house and Alex begins to sing and dance uh, and he's you know going off to to singing in the rain which from what I understand uh, the the stars of singing in the rain weren't happy about when they when they saw the movie and it's kind of this playful and and people have interpreted it as you know he's kind of this cool anti-hero this rebel one of the first few you know it could be argued anti-heroes in a movie like this. And I think Kubrick would say, well, that's not what I mean. But I think the way he goes about shooting those scenes uh, really kind of contradicts the message that he's trying to say. And I think, I, think the, I think a number of those scenes are pretty problematic. I think you're on to something. I, there's some choices that he makes and what he chooses to show that strike me as, you know, if not necessarily bad, quote-unquote, at least irresponsible in in the way that, like you said, even if Cooper didn't mean uh, to make Alex so charismatic and his portrayal of these events so in, in almost an illicit way interesting to the viewer or fascinating to the viewer, um, even if he didn't mean to do that, it's pretty clear that a lot of people kind of maybe did take away what he didn't intend from that. I mean, like you said, there's this anti-hero quality to Alex, but he really, I think Kubrick wants us to be a little bit more detached than that, to not see him as, as a hero or a villain, but just sort of to observe him again in a similar way as with the, the characters in 2001 in almost an anthropological sense, as if we're studying a particular species of ape rather than a character who should command our sympathies. But I think that that runs up against the gambit that I mentioned at the beginning of the segment where he's trying to play with our sympathies where first we're revolted by Alex and then we come to sympathize with him as we see him subjected to all sorts of brutalization himself. And I don't think that Kubrick really manages to thread that needle. I also think that it's interesting to refer to some of this content as mature content seems almost like a bit of a misnomer, right? Because if there's one thing that this movie does, it's portray the juvenilia of, of evil. The, the idea that evil, there's almost this childish quality to the violence that Alex and his droogs perpetrate. 
or the graffiti, the, the obscene graffiti that we see throughout the film, or the fact that when Alex kills that one woman with the obscene sculpture, there's a a cut that Kubrick makes that equates the uh, the the assault that Alex is doing with a, a sexual act, and that's. <laughs> there's a juvenile quality to that and that these are essentially boys who are just obsessed with fulfilling their appetites and nothing more. But I think that in seeking to portray the juvenilia of evil, Kubrick at some points creates kind of a juvenile film. And that's a problem when the, the content is as extreme as the content is here. Yeah, and you know we haven't even had a chance really to talk about some of the music that Kubrick has employed, and specifically the lack of original music that's used in his movies, especially with 2001 and and now this film, but instead using renditions of classic music. And we get that here, and there's almost this high-low art contrast. And you have Alex's character who just... You know, he loves Beethoven and specifically the Ninth Symphony, and that plays into the plot. And the idea of someone who is sort of morally corrupt, and yet he's fascinated by this almost transcendent music. So there is some fascinating ideas kind of going on. And then, too, I like some of the images here. Uh, There are... I think you would call them wide-angle lenses, where in the center you get this kind of standard image, but then on the edges it almost adds this fisheye look to it. And that that really helps to convey the distorted POV of some of these characters, pretty much all these characters. I don't know of a character in this film who's actually a good individual. Uh, you're hard-pressed to find anyone who actually does anything good in this movie from you know from the top to the bottom and then also the emphasis on the handheld shots uh particularly during those acts of violence and you you get some of those a couple of times when alex is attacking individuals and then the perspective switches and the handheld cameras are on alex later on in the film when he runs into all of those people that he hurt along the way and the tables have turned and too like you mentioned there's this idea of well he's kind of getting what he deserves are we repulsed by it do we accept it why not and so there is definitely a good deal of of food for thought here even if i don't think that this film is is uh, successful in terms of what kubrick is trying to convey and what he's trying to do with it and to his credit i do think that kubrick at some level does understand the the problem or or the the needle that he's trying to thread and how that's a really difficult needle to thread the idea that you know portraying a charismatic killer uh in order to play games with the audience's sympathies can can backfire in a way i think kubrick knew at some level that, that was possible which is really embodied by the uh scenes we get of the ludovico technique at at the beginning of that sequence, when Alex is first being subjected to it, he says, It's funny how the colors of the real world only seem really real when you vidy them on the screen. And that's kind of Kubrick almost saying that I know the seductiveness of the movie image 
can be problematic, that in some ways it can make us make make reality seem more vivid, more exciting than perhaps it should be, that it can seduce us into thinking things, feeling things, or in Alex's case, change our entire uh, view of reality in unhealthy ways. And Kubrick kind of gets that. I don't think that understanding it absolves him of the responsibility he has for creating these images, but to his credit, I think he does understand the problem to to a certain extent. Yeah, there, I mean, there definitely is this idea of art being desecrated in this film, anything from religious art to to film and into, as we talked about, imagery and, and murals, this, uh, this desecration of that important art and taking the high and, and bringing it down to our moral corruption. Well, listeners, that's our review of A Clockwork Orange. Like we mentioned, you can send us your thoughts at Pod on Twitter, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com if you want to email us. This is the part of the show where we kind of wrap things up and we recommend something from the world of television and or film to you, our listeners. Kevin, you're up first this episode. What would you like to recommend this week? Well, since we are talking about A Clockwork Orange and films that comment on society or offer a vision of humanity, that made me think of Charles Burnett's 1978 film Killer of Sheep. This is widely regarded as one of the best independent films ever made and also one of the first films to really honestly portray uh, the African American experience uh, of the average person, or, or at least one that wasn't sanitized by Hollywood. This is a film centering on a man named Stan. He's a father. He and his family live in the ghettos of 1970s California. He works at a slaughterhouse, and Burnett juxtaposes the extreme desperation poverty and discrimination that these characters face with images of a slaughterhouse. There are some really utterly transfixing scenes where uh, over the soundtrack, Burnett plays, you know, this, this really corny, you know, uh, Americana song of, you know, this is what America means to me, all these great things cut over scenes of sheep being led up a ramp by the Judas goat in order to have their throats cut and be dismantled inside the slaughterhouse. It's a it's a tough sit, but Burnett just even working on such a low budget with mostly non-professionals lands on images and sequences of such arresting originality and power that it's really worth worth anyone's time. So 1978's Killer of Sheep, that's my recommendation for this week. Yeah, I have that on my watch list. I have not seen it yet, but uh, it's one that I definitely look forward to. And you give it you give it a good recommendation. My film that I'd like to recommend this week is actually uh, it's much more recent. It was actually released on Netflix here this last week and it's a short. It's 15 minutes long. It's Paul Thomas Anderson's Anima. And this is a short musical film directed by, of course, Paul Thomas Anderson of, oh man, you could just go on and on with this filmography. And it's set to the music of Tom York of Radiohead. He also stars in this 
it's sort of a visual drama. I I've not heard of or I've not heard much of Tom York's music or even that of, of Radiohead, but this is one of those films that is sort of mesmerizing in in many ways. The choreography, the the shots, the composition of some of those shots, the blocking, it really is pretty wonderful. It's only 15 minutes, so if you have a chance this uh, this next week, this holiday weekend, make sure to check it out. It's one of those two that I think after you watch it the first time, uh, you're going to want to go back and and watch it again. It's it's uh, it's really special and, you know, I would love to see another feature film from Paul Thomas Anderson here soon, but uh, in the meantime, uh, a 15-minute musical short, uh, it, it holds us together. And it keeps us uh, waiting pretty well. So Anima, it's on Netflix. Yeah, you know, there's been a little bit of a trend lately for uh, music videos. I, maybe it's not, you know, it's not new by any means. I mean, Martin Scorsese was making music videos for Michael Jackson back in the day. But I do feel like we're getting more auteurist uh, music videos these days. Like there's Beyonce's Lemonade. The National this year had a music video for their new album directed by Mike Mills, who directed 20th Century Women and Beginners. And, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is a big name. I haven't gotten a chance to check this one out yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with that kind of format as well. Yeah, uh, it's 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 pretty pretty good. I, I've I want to watch it again. Uh, I want to go back and check it out, watch it a couple more times because it's, it is, as I mentioned, it, it is mesmerizing. Listeners, that's our episode this week. Up next, uh, for next week, we're going to be reviewing the new horror film Midsummer. And I'm, I'm, I don't know. I told you, Kevin, before we started recording this, I'm not necessarily looking forward to watching that movie, uh, but it's definitely going to be an experience. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. And then <laughs> we're going to close out our summer of Stan with a look at Barry Lyndon. And I'm really pumped about that. I, I saw that recently. And so I'm coming in fresh and, and that's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristandPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.